Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments in the history of sports. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I'm appreciative and grateful that you took time out of your busy day to hear my rants and ravings about sports history. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Now, this week's show, we will talk to Greg James, the co-host of the podcast from the 55-yard line, a podcast devoted totally to the history of the Canadian Football League. The league, to our friends from north of the border, is more than just a sport that passes the time after the end of the NHL season. You know, quite frankly, it is the nation's glue whose passions are passed down from generation to generation. Now, my guest of this episode is an authority of the history of the CFL, and he will be joining me to talk about his favorite memories, teams, and other nuggets of the league. Also on this week's show will we'll be, of course, the top five, but we're going to do things a little bit differently this week for our top five. Instead of doing the anniversaries of sports moments of the past, we will devote this week's top five to the five Major League Baseball records that, in my opinion, will never be broken. And this past week was the anniversary of Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak coming to an end against Cleveland. And to wrap up the show will be this week's shout-out, saluting the newly crowned NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks, as we will take a look at that franchise from a historical perspective. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to this week's edition 
of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and today we got a very special guest on board. As you've heard in our introduction, we're going to be talking a little bit of the a little bit of CFL history. And with me being from Louisiana, I've had very limited experience with the Canadian Football League, but I'm a big, big, big fan of it. And to pretty much talk about what's going to what, you know, touching a little history of the Canadian Football League, we got a, my man by the name of Greg James, who is the co-host of the From the 55-Yard Line podcast here on the Sports History Network. Greg, Greg glad to have you aboard, man. What's going on with you? I'm doing Thanks a lot, Dana. I appreciate it. And uh, no, things are good. Things are good in Chicago. And uh, I know things, my co-host, uh, Scott, he's down, just got down to Birmingham, got settled in. So... Things are doing doing good for both of us. Well, that's great, man. I mean, I heard a few episodes you guys have got have gotten, and um, I tell you, it's entertaining, and and there's a lot of CFL history, a lot of CFL memories going almost pretty much team by team. I heard one episode uh, from a few weeks back about the the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and that was really interesting about a guy who wrote the who wrote a book about the Blue Bombers, and it was very interesting. It kept me really, really. It, engaged in that it was really really fun yeah talking with Roy was that Roy was our second episode and uh Roy has written five he's in the process of writing his fifth book in fact his fifth book book is going to be published pretty soon I and I know that because I've already sent my money in for it (laughs) (laughs) for for it but yeah now talking with guys like Roy and um what we've what Scott and I when we first came up with the idea for the show. There's a lot of Canadian football podcasts out there. Now, during the pandemic, obviously, CFL talk has been light because there hasn't been CFL football since back since the last Great Cup. But as we sat down and we looked at uh, kind of what was out there in terms of podcasts, we're like, well, let's do Canadian Football League history and try to complement what's already out there. And, um, you know... And having listened to Arnie's show and your show and uh, Joe Zimba's show and a whole bunch of other shows that uh, are hosted by some, as it turns out, some friends of mine that I didn't realize they were hosting podcasts, um, coming to the Sports History Network just kind of seemed to be the natural fit. So, no, we're happy to be here, and we um, are going to be recording, I believe, episode number nine tomorrow, if all uh, all goes well. All right. All right. Um, now, you, you did mention you're in Chicago. The question I have is, you, with you being from Chicago, what got you interested in the Canadian Football League? I'm one of these weird guys that like has always liked things that I don't like. I don't like. I marched to kind of my own drummer, and even with sports growing up, growing up in Chicago, well, you had the Bears, and the Bears were the team. Now this was the the 70s, and the Bears weren't that good. So as a kid growing up, especially around age 10, I had. I, I wore glasses since the second grade. By the time uh, ten, um, I turned 10, I had to get a new pair of glasses. So I got a pair of those brown. And this is kind of a roundabout way of, this is a long way to the CFL, but bear, strap yourself in. Okay. So <laughs> got myself uh, the same types of glasses as Bob Greasy. He became a huge Miami Dolphins fan. Okay. Growing up during that era. And I spent a, time, a lot of time, too, during that time period in the library after school, waiting for my mom to pick me up from work. And during that time, I gravitated to the sports books and the encyclopedias. 
and I'm just a history nerd in general. So I'm also a sports history nerd. And I grab and I looking at oh, there's a football league in Canada. Now, back then, back in the 70s, obviously we did not we're not a in Chicago, we're not a border city, so we don't have access to the CBC, which the CFL was on then. So what I knew of the CFL came really from books and maybe a magazine article if I could find it. But it really wasn't until, I want to say around the mid-2000s, when I really started watching CFL football. Now, we had the CFL experiment down in the States, of which included the Shreveport Pirates in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to touch on that in a minute. <laughs> okay. I uh, I kind of missed that period because when all that happened, I had a lot of things going in my life between being single with work, meeting my wife. And so I didn't have really a whole lot of time to even watch football. In fact, during that time period, I don't recall watching any football at all. I had On, on top of that, I was also um, knee-deep in my military reserve duty. And so it really wasn't until the mid, I would say mid-2000s, when the CFL came on TV down here, uh, NFL Network, ESPN, that I really started watching. I've always paid attention to it. But it's always been usually in print. So, well, I have a, something that actually have a different experience with the CFL. Growing up in Louisiana, believe it or not, the first time I ever got experience with the Canadian Football League was on ESPN. But this is early to mid '80s. They used to show games maybe once a week. Right. In the CFL, that that I mean, the CBC would broadcast the games down here in the states, covered by ESPN or whatever. But if you have the the uh, you know the CBC broadcasters or whatever, but ESPN would carry it to the states, and that's how I got interested in it. Quick story: my one of my my best friend David Bashe, I remember one time, this was during the summer, like maybe in August. And I'm getting ready for the NFL pre. I'm getting ready for the NFL preseason. You know, I'm a big Chargers fan, believe it or not, from Louisiana. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, I'm getting ready for the season. I'm going on and on about the Chargers and Dan Fouts and everything else. And he was like, "Man, I saw our game last night. I'm like, where you saw our game at last night? The preseason don't start for two weeks. He's like, no, man, it was like Canadian team. They got a game on tonight. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, on ESPN. Check it out. Check it out. So I go. That night, and and turn it on the ESPN. Sure enough, and it was the most. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen because it was Ottawa Rough Riders against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and I'm right. like, why are they named the same thing? <laughs> you know, yeah. as a as a nine ten year old kid, like why are they named the same thing? But Ottawa is spelled with two words back then, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and Saskatchewan was one word. So why are they named the same thing? And I started watching it, and one of the announcers said that, you know, the first and 10, you know, Ottawa's ball, first and 10 on the 53-yard line. I'm like, what am I watching, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, somebody kicked the field goal, and he missed it, but it went out the end zone, so the team still gets a point. Like, what am I watching here, you know, as a 19 year old kid? But all of a sudden, I just felt like, this is – Cool, weird, but cool, and I've been right. a fan ever since. Yeah, and that's uh, the thing about Canadian football is, is when people watch it for the first time, they have that reaction. It's like, wait a minute, this looks familiar, but yet very different. And right, 
go back to the 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 one the the rouge as as they call it in yeah, Canadian yeah. football. The beautiful thing about Canadian football is every even the punter can 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 muster some offense. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's the beautiful thing about to me Canadian football every play matters cuz you have th- you have three downs. Three downs. Right. You can have there's there's just so much more passing than back well there's so much more passing in the CFL back when the NFL was predominantly a run league. Now, in fact, before we even we came on, I was kind of looking at um, just out of sheer curiosity, looking at passing yards for NFL players. And the NFL, Drew Brees is the all-time passing leader. Period. Right. Be it CFL or, or NFL. But there was a time when your your leaders in pro football passing were all Canadian. Because CFL game, the Canadian game, is just a pure passing league. The NFL is caught up to the CFL in terms of the NFL. NFL is much more CFL style now. And I'll use Kyle um, Kyler Murray as an example. Mm-hmm. An NFL quarterback that is in the CFL mold. Right. I was just reading an article about. Um, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna drop. I'm, I'm, we're gonna name drop in a little bit, but I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna drop one name that I had on my list. And his son is currently playing in the CFL right now, who was a dual threat quarterback who's a lot like Kyler Murray. And I'm talking about Tracy Ham. Now, does that oh, yeah. ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, Tracy Ham, who played for Saskatchewan. I remember him when he was with the Argos, with the Toronto. He played Argos. for the Baltimore Stallions. He played for the Baltimore Stallions as well. You're right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, his son, uh, his son is playing now. And. Tracy Ham is one of those names. Now I play, and this might go a little off topic, but not quite. We're still sticking with Canadian football. But I have Tracy Ham. I pl- I have the Baltimore Stallions in a tabletop simulation CFL league. Okay. And see, Tracy Ham, when Tracy Ham gets the ball, magic happens. Right. <laughs> you know, Tracy Ham was a quarterback who played in the eighties and early nineties. Yeah. And he was a lot like Kyler Murray. He was like a Kyler right. Murray, Lamar Jackson type, you know. Yeah. And he was just tremendous. He was like one of the first players that I remember watching, like, wow, who is this wow. guy? You know, of course, the first player that of note that I remember playing in Canada was, of course, Warren Moon for Edmonton when they had that great dynasty with Hugh Campbell as coach. Talk about that a little bit. Well, the S. And, and they're now known as the Elks, but back then they were the Eskimos. But you had Warren Moon coming from Washington. Un- the the NFL didn't didn't want to didn't draft him at all. Right, that's right. You know, it, let's call it what it is. It was pure discrimination, if you ask me. And reading and looking back and hearing his story, because they the NFL was like we we know how the NFL was back then. Mm-hmm. Goes to Canada and just lights it up. Mm-hmm. And then is heavily recruited. He won, and what five championships in a row? Yeah, I mean the Eskimos were the powerhouse back in the early '80s. I have friends of mine who host the Edmonton Elks uh, podcast called the Turf District, and anytime they talk about Warren Moon, especially uh, super fan Mike, Mike Parkey's a uh, super fan Mike who's uh, fifty six Parkey's on on um, on Twitter. Anytime he talks about Warren Moon, he smiles. He doesn't realize he smiles when he talks about Warren Moon, but just you see those memories of those great Edmonton teams 
come roaring back for him. Oh man. When he was a kid watching, watching those Eskimos. Now I've watched some games with, especially the great cup games he was in, but unfortunately from the vast majority of us here down in the States, we never got to see Warren moon play for those Eskimo teams. Now that was a game that I had heard about. I don't know if this was a playoff game or a regular season game, but it was basically a shootout between Warren Moon and Condridge Holloway of the Toronto of the of the Argos. Yeah, both of them threw for like six hundred yards each. Yeah, something like that. You know. Yeah, you you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Woods wrote a great book on those Argos teams with Condridge Holloway back in the early back in the early eighties, and I read about that in his book. And yeah, just. You know, it's just phenomenal the talent that was up there, and it's it, the talent that was up there that didn't come down here to the states, especially during the seventies and eighties, sixties, seventies, and eighty and eighties, when more or less the pay scale was about the same. Let's say fifties, sixties, and and seventies. In the eighties, the pay there started to be a widening of the gap in terms of pay with the CFL and the NFL. Okay, but so much CFL talent up there. Um, good example, and a guy I never, I've only seen play on tape and unfortunately that was at the end of his career with the 1966 Miami Dolphins when they were expansion team Cookie Gilchrist right now that's a name from the NFL pass see I'm a I'm a I'm a AFL guy I love the yeah. NFL and Cookie Gilchrist was basically Earl Campbell before Earl Campbell right and, and it just looks weird like seeing somebody that big running the football wearing the number two that just yeah. looks weird to me, but that's just a common thing in the Canadian Football League, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, Doug Flutie, you know, if you have to admit, pick, pick one name that anybody in the States would remember who played in the CFL would be Doug Flutie. Yeah. He obviously, he wore number he wore different numbers here, down here in the NFL, and he's most famous in the NFL, at least I think he should, well, at least he should be, for his very last play, which was a drop kick. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but up in Canada, he played for three different teams. He won everywhere he went. And, you know, it, it, you know, he was just a short guy, much in the mold of what Kyler Murray is, say, now, who mm-hmm. was dual threat. I mean, he could throw, but, man, he could run, too. You know, you had, you know, you had a bunch of quarterbacks who started in the CFL and ended up in the – ended up here in the States playing in the NFL. You have – you know, just coming from memory, Joe Cap obviously with the Vikings. You know, but he played for BC. Um, right. Led him to a great Cup game. Am I correct? You know, I know he, he won. I don't know if he won a great Cup, but he, he won a great played, Cup. Okay, but he, I think he's like he was the first quarterback to lead a team to a great Cup and to a Super Bowl, which is pretty cool. And and this is the the trivia question. It's one of these trivia questions that I throw out there on Twitter every now and then. Name me the only quarterback who's ever won an NFL title and a CFL title. That's Tobin Rowe. No, it's Joe Cap. Oh, Joe Cap. That's right. He, he was the well, I, you know what? I take that back. You just thought, do, do I have Tobin? Did I, am I not counting Tobin Rowe in that? Because Tobin Rowe won a championship with the Lions, won one with the Chargers in the AFL, and then won one in the CFL, right? You know what? And that's the beautiful thing about coming on podcasts. It's like, <laughs> Oh, now I learned something new. 
So there you go. There is there because, it, because it, the Chargers only championship, and me being the Chargers fan, I know all about that. Okay. Tobin Rode was the quarterback. People think it was Hadel, but it was actually Tobin Rode. Hadel was the backup. Hadel was like a really, rookie. yeah. Hadel was a rookie. The when the Chargers won it in '63. Really, I did not know that. Awesome. Awesome. It's uh, yeah. Now I know. Now, now I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. Um, there was a time period. Now we talked to before, right before the, the right before we came on about. Right. The CFL and when what I call the American invasion in the mid nineties. Now, one thing I got to say about this, and maybe you can shed a little light on this, is I'm trying to understand why this is. There's a lot of Canadian fans, and I know a good bit of Canadian football fans who Mm -hmm. live in Canada, and they've always thought that the CFL expanding into the United States was the biggest mistake the CFL ever made. Have you heard anything like that? And have you, if you have, have you heard any reasons why Canadian fans feel that way? Well, it's kind of okay. So let's go back to when let's go back to when John Candy and and um, Wayne Gretzky were part of that ownership group back with the Argos. Okay. okay. Back then, the CFL was struggling, and John Candy. Pretty much, and from my understanding and talking with Paul Woods and talking with other people who grew up as Argo fans and are much better CFL historians than than I am or have told me, it is because John John Candy is the one who brought the idea of, came up with the idea for American expansion. Now, that American expansion ultimately happened, obviously, after he died. Yeah. And I owe, and 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 I had this discussion. We had this discussion with Paul Woods on our show, and Paul Woods can make you know the argument can be made that John Candy saved the CFL because that American expansion led to expansion fees, which the CFL sorely needed at the time. Without that infusion of cash, you could argue the CFL would have died. Wow. Now, so. Was the CFL, was the American expansion a failure? On the surface, you know, you look at all things considered. Well, yeah, all the teams except Baltimore had success. And even Baltimore, towards the end, was struggling to attract fans, especially the more, you know, once the Browns said they're moving to Baltimore, the 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 support, you know, the attendance for Stallions games went down. And the Stallions knew that their time in Baltimore was up. Mm-hmm. And they ended up, and, and, and the team did not go away. That team did not dissolve. They just moved to Montreal and became the Alouettes. Yeah, that's right, because the Alouettes had folded in the early 90s, right? Right. And they didn't have a team in Montreal, nor did they have a team in Ottawa for the longest time. And yeah. and the, the remaining pieces of that Baltimore Stallions team moved up to Montreal and became the Alouettes. Now, that I didn't know. That I, I knew that the Alouettes had folded in the early 90s. I knew that. And, right. And, but I didn't know that the remnants of that team became the new Montreal Alouettes. Now, you have a new team in Ottawa, which, you know, we said in the beginning were once called the Rough Riders. Now they're the Red Blacks. Right. Um, 
how do you how do they how do they come about pretty much the same way or do they just decide to just put another team back in Ottawa like the same way they, they put a major league baseball team in Washington because it's kind of it's kind of crazy not to have a Canadian Football League team in the nation's capital well the the, the Rough Riders historic franchise they just ran out of money and you know you you talk it's all about the owners and they had bad owners. Mm-hmm. And so the team folded, the Rough Riders folded, folded a few years later, you had uh, another, an ownership group come in and you got the renegades, bad ownership. Again, the renegades folded. And then, you know, they took a while to get. And you know team. what? I forgot they were once called the renegades too. Yeah. And actually, right. yeah. Renegade, you know what? Renegades. And to me, they still have the coolest Canadian football Logo because they, they were the only, I only that team. Logo. Now that you bring it up, they did have a really cool logo. Yeah, with the with the maple leaf on the side of the helmet. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, so they folded. And again, this is, boils down to money and bad owners. And I don't know, you know, it, it's and that seems to be a con a, a recurring theme throughout the CFL. But the third time was the charm when the Red Blacks came together. Because the Red Blood, and they took their time bringing that franchise in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after a re- you know typical expansion team start, they've had nothing but success. Yeah, I've noticed, really. I've noticed that they were like one of the top teams in the CFL right now. Yeah. Um, I have, um, like I said, I got friends and, and I've become pretty much an honorary Canadian with my friends and an honorary Tiger Cats fan because of them, because they live in Hamilton and in the surrounding areas. And um, I've been watching them, and they, they've been impressive ever since they came in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ottawa is a really good football market in terms of fan support. And that's another thing with the CFL, unlike the NFL. Well, the CFL is attendance-driven. The NFL is not. The NFL, attendance for the NFL is important, but we both know, I mean, the, the NFL has paid billions of dollars, where the CFL has only paid millions of dollars per season for the TV rights. And that and, the, and that money really only covers player salaries, mm-hmm. barely. Right. And, and you got a couple rules that about the CFL that I found interesting that only you can only have like a certain X amount of American players on each team, which I yeah. didn't know until recently. Right. And, you know, there has to be there's a balance. I mean, coaches, they, they have to factor that in even when doing substitutions. Wow. Now I'm going to do some name dropping here. See, see what you could come up with. And I'm, I'm just going to say a couple of names. And if you know anything about these, these gentlemen who's part of the CFL history, just, you know, just drop a line and, and let me know what you think. We okay. were talking about Ottawa, the, the Rough Riders. And one of the greatest players in Rough Rider history is a guy by the name of Russ Jackson. Talk uh-huh. about him. Well, here's what I can tell you and just kind of, I mean, a brilliant career. I mean, with, 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 with Ottawa. And he is synonymous with football in Ottawa. And I'd have to dig into the records, and I couldn't tell you off the top of my hand, off of my head, just what what records he has. But he's got great cups. And he, well, he's also Canadian, too. And yeah. to have a Canadian be your star quarterback, you don't see that that often. You don't see that at all in the Canadian Football League. If Having I'm a Canadian saying, behind center is, is rare. Somewhere. That he is the sixth 
all-time leading passer in CFL history, but he's also has more passing yards than anybody else who is Canadian. So yeah, he's the number yeah. one passing Canadian of all time. I believe so. You know, Russ Jackson of the of the of the um of Ottawa, the Rough Riders, the old Rough Riders. He played in the fifties and sixties. Am I correct? Yeah, he uh, he played in the he well he played in the fifties and sixties. And um, in terms of his accomplishments, he was Grey Cup champion in sixty and sixty eight and sixty nine. And um, he um, you know he played twelve years in the CFL. And um, you know he's one of the in our in our intro to our show. We uh, when we were do, putting together the the trailer for the from the fifty five yard line podcast, mm-hmm. I was looking at everybody guys that we grew up with, guys of our age, fifties, let's say let's say sixties and seventies, and I made sure that Russ Jackson was included in there because he is of the same era as Johnny Unitas, Roger Staubach, Bob Greasy, those guys that we all grew up with, and. Yeah, you know, he's a legend, and it's um, he never played down in the states, but you would I would put him up against any NFL quarterback of that era, wow. based upon the statistics and also based upon his impact on the game of Canada. Give you another name, another quarterback, Ron Lancaster. Ah, uh, Rough Rider legend. We talked about him extensively in our last episode um, with um, with um, Don Charbon. And um, Rob Rob Vanstone from uh, the Regina Leader Post and Don's from the Third Down Gamble podcast, and uh, it w- some great memories with those guys about seeing Russ Jackson not only play but just the type of person he was with the fans. Because mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan, it's much like Green Bay. It is. You're right. It really is a lot like except smaller, except a much smaller type community. In the sense that it's 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 the only time it's the only team in town, much like Green Bay. Green Bay is in Wisconsin, but it's still part of that Milwaukee big, you know, that whole Milwaukee area. Mm-hmm. But Saskatchewan, they don't have pro hockey. They have they don't have major league hockey. They don't have major league baseball. They have a CFL team, and that CFL team is it's it's. Much I always consider them the Green Bay Packers of the CFL. Now, aren't they not, just like the Packers, owned by the community, owned by the yeah, state? they are yeah, they are community owned, owned and operated. Wow! So that's another thing that just like Green Bay is just that they they're in the middle of the country, farmland everywhere, owned yeah. by the community, owned by the fans, which I think is the coolest thing, you know. Yeah. And there's a lot of CFL teams that's like that, right? Isn't right? It like, you know them. Well, Edmonton and Winnipeg are the other two that are really there's an owner. The the way the ownership is, it's more, it's more or less community based, community owned. Mm -hmm. Cool. Another name, this is a coach, Hugh Campbell. I think I mentioned him earlier, Hugh Campbell. Oh yeah. I mean, just Hugh Campbell up in Edmonton. I mean, what more can you, and uh, you know, as we're talking here, I'm, I'm I'm punching these names up just to remind myself of some of the accomplishments because I'm always worried that I'm going to miss something. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I mean, longtime coach, his son is 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 a coach in the CFL now too. And Hugh Campbell has, you know, great. Uh, here, name me a, a coach. Name me a, an NFL coach that has 
with the exception of possibly Bill Belichick that has his resume. Champion, let's see, championship in 66 to 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 87, 93, 2003, and 2005. You have to go to basketball with Red Auerbach to even come close yeah. to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you got to do something like that. Right. You know, but and that was the first coach that I remember hearing about as a kid was Hugh Campbell. Yeah, I remember hearing about him watching Edmonton, you know, in the early 80s and, and, and things like it, it, just just running it up on people with Warren. Right. Well, I mean, he was he was a, he was a great player and a great coach. And some of those championships came when, you know, 66 won came when he was a player. Right. And, um, but yeah, just, and I believe in, you know, and, you know, not only did he was successful with the Eskimos, but then he came to, he co- remember he coached Houston, the he, Oilers for a while. Did. He did coach the Oilers. I remember that now. And then he, for a period of time, he, and he was, he was the coach of those Warren Moon teams. Yeah. Let's, yeah. I mean, let's not forget that too. And that, you know, we're talking a streak from what, 78 through 82. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no other professional coach that has five championships in a row. None. You're right. A league championship. Not even in the NFL. In foot, yeah. Not, no, even not in, in the, the NFL. NFL. You, you've never had a coach to win five consecutive championships. Right. You yeah. know? And give, um, give you a couple of more names here. Milt Stiegel, the Jerry Rice, what I consider the Jerry Rice of the CFL. It, you know, Milt Stiegel fall. It's right. I know more. I know more about Milt Stiegel now as a TV personality than I did as a player because it kind of fell right into that gap. Mm-hmm. With you know, he is a legend, and he does follow me on Twitter, by the way, too. And that's, oh, that's what right. I, I found okay. out one day. I'm like, oh, Milt's following me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Jerry Rice of you know, you know, basically the Jerry Rice of the CFL. Yeah, because that was like a time where he he had the most touchdowns longer than set, than sixty yards yeah. in a career in the CFL. Right, something like that. I think I read that somewhere. Right, uh, some, some, something along along those lines where he's had like so many x amount of touchdowns over fifty yards receiving. And and name me and here and you probably can't even name me, but name me a guy who played for the Cincinnati Bengals that went on to be a champion. After he played for the Cincinnati Bengals, see that's an accomplishment within itself. Yeah, that is really an accomplishment within itself. And we're talking the early '90s Cincinnati Bengals. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right when you know, right at the, at the tail end of the Boomer Esiason era in Cincinnati. Yeah. yeah. You know? And you know, it's funny because Milt is one of those guys that you watch CFL on TV. And fortunately, down here in the states, now we have ESPN Plus. We have ESPN, so we can watch these guys, all these guys. And even, um, you know, another, um, um, I'm drawing a blank right here. Um, played for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, played down, um, God, I apologize here. And I have his book here. Uh, <laughs> it's It's been a long weekend. Um, but with Milt, and there's other guys, oh, hey, well, not the person I'm thinking of. And the name's going to come to me in a minute, but Henry Burris. I remember Henry Burris, right? I remember Henry Burris. Burris. And, um, you know, Henry Burris, I think he's down here. Isn't he down here? I think he's down in the States now with the Bears, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. 
And, um, but you get guys like these that are on the TV that are the former players of the CFL. And for Americans down here, that's how we've gotten to know some of these guys is after their careers as personalities. Henry Burris, Milt Stegall, and I'm having – I am drawing a blank on, on the former quarterback of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And I know with Scott Adamson's listening to this later, he's going to beat me over the head for not coming with that <laughs> name right off the top of my head. You said it yourself it was a long weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to give you two more names. Okay. First one, Chuck Ely. Chuck Ely. Chuck Ely is one of those – he played during that era where both – well, we didn't have the CFL down here. Right. So I would – and I, I, I'll tell you, be straight up, much like I would, I would tell if I were doing uh, – when I was an intelligence officer, having to brief something for an admiral or a general – Hey, I'm going to have to get back to that one to you later because off the top of my head, I mean, I know Chuck Ely. I know his, his, his story, but in terms of his accomplishments off the top of my head in the CFL, in terms of passing yardage and that, I couldn't tell you, just off the top of my head. Well, Chuck Ely, for those who are listening, Chuck Ely was the first black quarterback to win a Grey Cup. Led Hamilton yes. to the CFL championship in 1972 over Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, and I think I remember doing some research because I wrote, I had a, I used to do a, uh, I used to do a blog. And one year I did a blog about the seat, about the Great Cup that year, which was Hamilton versus Saskatchewan. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the very first time that a team played in his home stadium for the CFL championship. Right. And which right. was Iverwind Stadium, which I passed by, by the way the time that I went to Hamilton and I did, I almost missed it. It was so small. I thought it was a high school field. Oh yeah. I've been by it too. It's a really, really small. Well, it was a really small field. They, well, have since, they tore it down, didn't they? Yeah. And uh, they replaced it with Tim Hortons field, but CFL, most CFL stadiums are in general, are in general smaller than what we have up here. With right. They are. They, they are relatively small. They're smaller than a lot of college stadiums here. Right. You oh, know, yeah. It's more than a lot of college stadiums here. Because, um, like I said, I passed by Iverwind Stadium, and I didn't know I was passing by it. You know, my friend was like, hey, that's Iverwind Stadium. Like, it is? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. hey, getting back to the name I couldn't remember off the top of my head, Matt Dunnigan. Matt Dunnigan. I, yeah, yeah, that's another name. Isn't he a broadcaster? He's a broadcaster now, right? He is. A, and he's, he's one of my favorites, actually, because when he's on, he's just got he's got a very, to me, very Terry Bradshaw-type personality. And they're both from Louisiana, if right. I'm not mistaken. Right. And the last one, Dieter Brock. Now, this now I, I know Dieter Brock from when he was at Alabama. Right. Okay. I'm sorry, Matt Dunnigan is not. He is from. He's he's from Ohio. Okay. And uh, <laughs> but he played at Louisiana Tech. That's what he played a lot. That's what started okay. me up. Yeah. Okay, and like I was saying, Dieter Brock, I only remember Dieter Brock when he was at Alabama and when he was a quarterback at the Rams. But I heard that when he was at Winnipeg, he used to really spin it. Yeah, yeah, he did. He's, I mean, he's, um, I have, I have a book on Dieter Brock here I mean, I, that I have not read yet. But Dieter Brock, I mean, most people, most, most people in the States remember him for that one year with the Rams. But he is, you know, you look at who he, you know, as a coach, he's, um, you know, so let's just talk about his playing playing days. So from 74 to 83, he played for the Bombers. And then from 83 to 84 with the Ticats. So he had 10 years in the CFL. And 
he, you know, played down at Auburn, Jacksonville State. Yeah. And, and then he comes, you know, he spends his final year in the NFL. And this is what I always hate, the CCFL quarterbacks come down here and just play one year and then likely. Henry Burris played legend, great playing career in the CFL, came to the Bears for a cup of coffee, fortunately went back to the CFL and won a great cup. Okay. And played in Hamilton, played in Ottawa. And uh, Dieter Brock, he, um, you know, CFL, most, outs- you know, most outstanding player in 80 and 81. And, um, you know, he doesn't, he didn't get a, a Grey Cup championship during that time period. But, you know, I mean, he is, you, you, you mentioned Dieter Brock to anybody, to anybody who's a Winnipeg fan and they're just eyes are just of a certain age, their eyes light up. Right. Now, there's one more, and, and, and I'm going to get slammed if I don't mention this guy's name because I actually grew up with him. And he was actually a pretty good player. He played in the NFL and also played in the CFL. Kerry Joseph. That's a name I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I do not know Kerry Joseph. Kerry Joseph Tell me about him. played quarterback in the CFL in the early 2000s. Okay. And I went to high school with him. He and I grew up together. Wow. And he played a few years in for Saskatchewan, I want to say. He started off as a DB with the Bengals in the NFL. Yeah. And then wow. He played, and then he came across the border and played for Saskatchewan. Okay. So what it, when you talk – you've talked to him, obviously, about his experiences, right? Yeah, every now and then. I haven't, talk, I haven't, I haven't talked to Kerry since before I started doing this. Oh, Okay. Yeah, Man, that would be a that would I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear that conversation about what playing the Canadian Football League is like. Especially, it's one thing if you talk to somebody, you know, you hear an interview, but when you actually know the person, yeah, it, that 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 makes it that much more, I guess, in a way, relatable. Yeah, he's I mean, actually I, now a defensive back coach for McNeese State. Oh, okay, and um, so. In terms of his playing career, how long how how long was it? Well, he played in the NFL longer than he played in the CFL. I think he played okay. in the CFL for like maybe like four or five years or so. I I okay. have to look that up. Um, he played for played for a few years up in Saskatchewan, up in Regina, and right. um, but uh, he, from what I understand, he he said he had a blast playing there. You know, he said he wished he would have gone there first instead of going to the NFL because he really? was playing out of position. In the NFL, he was a DB, you know, at, but he, when he was at Magnese State and when he came to the CFL, he played quarterback. He was our quarterback in high school. Oh, okay. He was a quarterback. He's naturally a quarterback. He, that's the only position he played his whole life. Yeah. You know. Wow. But, uh, yeah, that, he and I have been knowing each other since we was in elementary school. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, it's always, I always say, it's it's interesting when you know, you know, somebody played professional football or like in, in my case, you know, I know somebody who's, who's, you know, with, with the current administration in Washington, who's, who's in the line of presidential succession. Wow. Um, it's, it's, it's different when you know those people personally, because it, you know, especially on the sports level, you, it's like, Hey, you know what? I remember them when they, when nobody thought they were going to be, it was just, he was just a, it was a number on the field. And now look, look at him. <laughs> you know, he's he's great. You know, and then other, other times you're like, did you think that, eh, you know what? The potential was always there. 
we always saw the potential. Yeah, you're right. Well, Greg, do me a favor, man. Will you please plug your podcast and plug and plug where they can find you on social media? So we are on. And before I do, hey, I was doing while we were talking about that trivia question at the very beginning about quarterbacks, mm-hmm. CFL and um, CFL and NFL titles. I went back. Joe Cap is the only player that I know of that won both the NFL quarterback. And we were talking about Rote, and yeah. he didn't win the C. And I apologize, but I'm like, oh, I got, I got to double check this just to make sure. <laughs> I'm like, but yeah, you're right. He won the AFL, won a title in the AFL and the NFL, but not in the CFL. Is is so I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. like, oh, I, I, got- I, yeah, I think he, 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 he played in all three. He's the okay only one to play in all three. Right. But, right. Yeah. Okay. But Cap is the yeah. first one to win both. Right. And, um, yeah, because <laughs> it's just one of the – you know how it is, man. We, we do the sports history stuff, and it's like, um, you know, the old joke is, like, you know, when old guys talk about boxing, there's always one guy that's like, check the almanac. So let's double check it, <laughs> make sure we got it right before we before we wrap it up. Um, but, yeah, getting back to what you were saying in terms of where to get a hold of us. So – um, you can find okay, so let's start off with Twitter. You got me at CFL America, you got my okay. co host Scott Adamson, who is at Adamson SL on Twitter. Okay, and you can find us on the Sports History Network at www.fromthe55yardline.ca, and that will link right directly right to the Sports History Network website where our where our um, podcast is found. And you can also find us at www.cflamericaradio.ca. And that will link to our other channel that has not only our podcast, but has also old public domain documentaries. Cool. Football documentaries. Cool. That's what I'm talking about, man. But Greg, I really, really appreciate you doing this with me tonight, man. I really appreciated the time and really appreciate the stories and knowledge that you dropped on us tonight, man. I really do. I, uh, no, I appreciate it. And the fun part about this is as we're talking, it's the best part is learning what, as we talk, there's just so much. The thing, the great thing about history is it's not so much about what you know. It's about finding out what you don't know. And even tonight, us talking. Right. I'm like, there's things I don't know as a fan, football wise, mm-hmm. that I love. I, I just love digging into that, and it's always, and that's kind of, you know, talking about how the CF, my fan fandom in the CFL started. It was because I was curious, and so in this crazy world we live in, where it just seems like everything, there's so much that it seem we we think there's so much out there that divides us, mm-hmm. but the one thing we realize is when we're sports fans is man there's so much that brings us together that's one thing people one of the beauty parts of our sports man one of the beauty parts of our sports it it doesn't you know and it doesn't sports is the universal language my ultimate goal and and after my my full-time career is over with is to ultimately just coach kids baseball and football and i did that for a while yeah (laughs) uh, just because it's and you know i plan on teaching in a foreign land and as my wife said, yeah, you'd be pretty good because sports is a great unifier. And we're going to be seeing that in the Olympics coming up. 
And uh, the one thing, and, you know, I love football, and I know I'm probably rambling on here, but it's sports is just, especially in the United States, in the times we live in, nothing, especially in the last 18 months, sports has been the one thing we can turn to to just help us forget about all the crap, all the problems of the world, whether it be, you know, it doesn't matter what it is the problems that are out there, you watch, you sit down and watch sports. Hey, you're back to being a 12 year old again. That's it. That's it. Greg, I really appreciate you, man. And uh, you take it easy, man. And you, and uh, good luck to you on the podcast. I'm, I'm, you definitely got a fan over here and I listen all the time. So really appreciate what you and Scott do. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming Uh, on. Thank you for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. And before we get on with the rest of the program, one sign that we're growing here at Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is we have a sponsor, and that is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself. And if you are into sports history, you really do need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get over 640 million pages worth of news from the U.S., from Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and many, many more places dating back to 1798. And to get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com, you could do that by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And also check out our Twitter feed at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop us a line or two here at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you could get new episodes whenever they come out. And now, this week's top five. Welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host. And if you are new to the program, this is what we call the top five. 
And this week, we're going to do things a little bit differently in our top five. Instead of counting down the five biggest historical events over the last seven days, we're going to count down the five records in Major League Baseball history that I believe to be unbreakable. The five records that are so far out there that I don't think anyone will even approach some of these. Now, this past week was the 80th anniversary of Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak coming to an end against the Cleveland Indians. So, in honor of Joe and Joe, I've compiled a list of what I consider the five most unbreakable records in baseball history. Starting off with number five. Roger Hornsby's 424 batting average in 1924. Rogers Hornsby was the first major superstar of the St. Louis Cardinals, and in the 1924 season, the Rajah, as what he was called back then, compiled an incredible 424 batting average that year, the highest single-season batting average in Major League Baseball history. To put that into perspective, it's been 80 years since anyone has batted over 400 in Major League Baseball, and that, of course, was Ted Williams in 1941. Number four, Cal Rifkin's 2,632 consecutive game streak. They said Lou Gehrig's record of 2130 games played would last for all time. That is, until Cal Rifkin came along. Right now, Mitt Merrifield of the Kansas City Royals has the longest active streak in the majors right now with a grand total of 274 consecutive games. Number three, Ty Cobb's 366 batting average for a career. Many baseball historians argue that Ty Cobb of the Detroit Tigers could very well be the greatest player in baseball history. Now, when he retired in 1928 as a member of the Philadelphia Athletics, his statistics would make that make a strong argument in that case. In addition to his 366 career batting average, Cobb finished his career with 4,189 hits. 1,938 runs batted in and 892 stolen bases, all records when he retired. Since Cobb's retirement nearly 100 years ago, no one has come within 25 points of Cobb since Ted Williams retired in 1960 with a 344 average. Among all active players, Miguel Cabrera has the highest batting average at 311. Number two. Connie Mack's 53 years as a manager of the Philadelphia Athletics. Now, he was born Cornelius Alexander McGillicuddy, and he became a Philadelphia institution, leading his Philadelphia Athletics for 53 seasons and compiled the most wins as a manager in Major League Baseball history with 3,731 career wins. Highlighting his career, Mack led his A's to five World Series championships, he was baseball's most gentlemanly manager, managing in coat and tie rather than the team uniform. To manage one ball club for 53 years helps if you do indeed own the team. He was actually the team owner as well, so it's kind of... And of course, the number one record in Major League Baseball history that I think will never be broken is Cy Young's 511 career victories as a pitcher. It's no wonder why the highest honor and for any pitcher to receive has his name attached to it. Born Denton True Young from Gilmore, Ohio, he began his career with the Cleveland Spiders in 1890. And when his long career ended in 1911, he compiled 511 victories. The next closest is Walter Johnson with 417 wins. 
to put his record in proper perspective, a pitcher would have to would have to win 25 games for 20 consecutive seasons, and even then, you would still come up 12 short. The closest active pitcher is Justin Verlander with 226 career wins, still a long way from 511. And that concludes this week's top five. And coming up next, we'll send a shout out to the newly crowned NBA champions of the NBA, which was 50 years in the making, right after this short break. Hello and welcome back to the final segment of the show, which is this week's shout out. And we're sending a shout out to the newly crowned NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks, who defeated the Phoenix Suns four games to two for that franchise's second NBA title, their first since 1971. Now, the Bucks over the years have been one of the more steadier franchises with strong ownership, impressive community involvement, and passionate fans. And throughout their history, the Bucks have had a bevy of great players along the way, which began with, of course, Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now, after your typical first year of expansion struggles, the Bucks would be tied with the worst record of the season and be involved in a historic coin toss for the right to draft Alcindor out of UCLA. Milwaukee would eventually win that coin toss and change the course of NBA history. Ironically, the other team that was vying to draft Alcindor with that coin toss was their fellow expansion classmates in 1968 and their opponents in this year's NBA Finals. Yes, the Phoenix Suns had a chance to draft Kareem right out of UCLA. Now, joining Alcindor the following year will be another future NBA Hall of Famer, and that's Oscar Robertson, who was traded to Milwaukee from the Cincinnati Royals. And with that combination, the Bucks would become the quickest expansion team to win a league championship in North American sports history, sweeping the Baltimore Bullets in 1971 for their first NBA title. And the Bucks would be a power in the NBA during the early part of the 1970s, going back to the finals in 1974. Yet, Unlike in 1971, they lost the finals that year to the Boston Celtics in a classic seven-game series that featured a double-overtime thriller in Boston Garden in Game 6, which Kareem connected on the clutch guy hook in the closing seconds of the second overtime to send the series to a seventh and deciding game. But by the mid-1970s, however, things began to change with the Bucks. Kareem was traded to the Los Angeles Lakers and Oscar Robertson retired. And the Bucks struggled on the court until 1980 and the addition of veteran Bob Lanier from their division rival Detroit Pistons. With the acquisition of Lanier, the Bucks would win their first division title since 1976. 
This would begin the Bucks' second era of greatness, and for the next 11 seasons, the Bucks would win six consecutive division tie- Central Division titles and be a perennial Eastern Conference contender. The main cogs of the Bucks' machine in the 1980s was the likes of Sidney Moncrief, Marcus Johnson, Paul Pressey, Craig Hodges, and the 1983 Rookie of the Year Terry Cummings. Joining this group would be Ricky Pierce and Jack Sigma, who had won an NBA title with the Sonics in 1979. Now, the 1983 Bucks are noteworthy in NBA history because they became the first team ever to sweep the Boston Celtics in a best-of-seven series. With the win, the Bucks advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals against the NBA, eventual NBA champion Philadelphia 76ers. After a decade of dwelling near the bottom of the NBA standings in the 1990s, the Bucks looked to add credibility to their basketball operations. In 1998, the team hired veteran coach George Carl, who had led the Sonics to an NBA Finals. And under his leadership, Carl and general manager Ernie Grunfeld and steady addition of such talents as Tim Thomas and Sam Cassell, the Bucks developed into an elite team in the Eastern Conference. With the nucleus of the big three, with those two, and also Ray Allen, Carl created a successful renaissance era in Milwaukee, and the team reached the zenith in the 2000-2001 season, winning 52 games in their first division title in 15 years. The Bucks would reach the 2001 Eastern Conference Finals by defeating the Charlotte Hornets. However, in, seven, in a seven-game series against the Sixers, they eventually lost to Allen Iverson and company. Now, which brings us to this era of, of Bucks basketball with the likes of, of course, Giannis Antetokounmpo, which is known as the Greek Freak, who was the 15th overall pick for the Bucks in the 2013 draft. And in that same draft, the Bucks acquired Chris Middleton from the Detroit Pistons in exchange for Brandon Jennings. This version of the Bucks have brought the city of Milwaukee a much-deserved championship, and along the way, they've had other notable players that the Bucks faithful have cheered on, such as Bob Dandridge, Brian Winters, Junior Bridgman, John Lucas, Lucius Allen, Big Dog Glenn Robinson, and Vin Baker, and the face of the franchise, Michael Redd, just to name a few. This championship was 50 years in the making for the Bucks, and this could only be the beginning. Thank you for joining me in this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And remember to subscribe to this podcast and others located here on the Sports History Network. And also check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2. And until next time, so long. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. 
But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports gesture year, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.